the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to another hour all about science with me, Elna Schutz. The Science Inside is the show where we look into science around something that's in the news, something we're all talking about anyway, and just generally for your life. Today on the show, we look at online security and data or data, depending on what kind of person you are, following the big data leak on Facebook or rather by Facebook. By now you probably know that the data of as many as 87 million people on Facebook was shared with the London-based data mining firm called Cambridge Analytica. Mark Zuckerberg testified in Congress uh, last week about this. I'm sure you saw him looking extremely nervous. I have never seen Internet's golden boy look that pale and nervous even for him and i'm sure you're worried if you are a facebook user but i found out that you can check on your facebook profile whether you've had interaction with that particular app that was responsible for the sharing of data there are a couple of other checks you can also do but the main app is called this is your digital life app and there's an option to check this in your Facebook Help Center. I uh, breathed a little bit easier when I checked it and realized that I was at least not directly affected. Whether you are on Facebook or not, whether you're more of an Instagram person or just love reading a good old book, this is a great time to check the safety of your data online, whatever that data might be, and just to become more aware of it. And one of the most obvious places to start is your passwords for accounts. Are you one of those people that use their pet's name for everywhere? Fluffy 1, Fluffy 2, Fluffy 532. You would be surprised how obvious some people are when it comes to passwords. There's a password management provider called Splash Data that releases a list every year of the worst passwords. I love having a look at it just to chuckle a little bit. They use about 5 million leaked passwords from users in North America and Western Europe. And if you think that it's something super complex... It is not, because as before, the top two spots last year were one, two, three, four, five, and can you believe this? Password. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, password is a password people like to use. Oh, let me in and QWERTY are also firm favorites. And if you think you are being creative and unique by using pop culture references, Maybe don't, because Star Wars came in at 16th with Dragon not very far behind referring to Game of Thrones, of course. And it's not just about avoiding the obvious, because researchers now say that the usual recommendations, I mean, we've all seen this, use a mixture of cases, use some numbers, etc., and passwords, actually won't have as much effect as we think because, of course, strong password-cracking software and hackers are becoming smarter every day. So, in fact, the best thing you can do is to use a very long password. So, 12 letters or more at least. Use a bunch of symbols. Some people even suggest using emojis, even though I believe that must be very difficult in some places where you may be not on your phone um, or not in a place that uses emojis. And as many bizarre combinations as you can, preferably not typical languages like English, 
the more stuff you do in terms of that, the stronger it is. And then you will not be one of those people whose password is password. Wow, really, guys? So today on the show, we look a little bit further than just passwords because we are looking in our main story at data security online in a bigger sense of the word. Then it's unscience where we find out which gender thinks they they are smarter in the classroom and whether that is true or not. And then later we look at the science scientist behind the science with Dr. Mark Williams Wynn. That's all on the show. You can find us on Facebook. It's VAFM or on our WhatsApp line 084-078-4912. And if you do tweet us at VAFM, make sure you, you, you use the hashtag, hashtag science inside before we jump into everything else on the show we like to just be informed citizens of the science world and get into our news this week's science headline today i have one of our producers harmony malefi with me in studio hi harmony hi elna what do you have for us today well, my story comes from um, Sao Press, Columbia University. News, new research was conducted to show that older men and women generate as many brain cells as younger people do. According to the study, many senior citizens remain more mentally and emotionally intact than is commonly believed. Can you imagine your mom growing just as many brain cells as you do? That's quite surprising because... Generally, the knowledge seems to be around this, that you get born with a bunch of brain cells and then you lose them with time. Well, it was found that older people have similar ability to generate thousands of hippocampal cells as younger people do. These cells are responsible for generating neurons, which is important for memory processing. It was also found that capacity of the brain structure used for emotion and memory was similar across all ages. However, older people may have the same number of neurons as we all do, but with some of them not functioning and making connections between parts of the brain. Okay, that sounds quite interesting, but tell us a little bit more about the study. The research was conducted from previously healthy individuals aged 14 to 79 who had recently died naturally. The research was aimed at comparing the number of brain cells in each of the individuals of different ages. It was known that in rodents and primates, the ability to generate new hippocampal cells declines with age. But surprisingly, a part of the brain responsible for helping generate episodic memories was shown to occur in aging humans. This was according to researchers at Columbia University and New York State Psychiatric Institute. Simply, all those brains produce new brain cells just as the young. Okay, so that does make sense, but there's got to be some kind of deviation here because the brains of young people and older people are quite different. <laughs> of course they are. They can be a smaller pool of early cells that are forced in their capacity to differentiate and self-renew. Thus, reduced mental and emotional features in old age are as a result of this. The hippocampal generation of neurons that sustains human-specific mental function and emotional flexibility throughout our life may be compromised. Okay, this makes a lot of sense, especially in terms of memory, what you were saying, because we've all had that grandfather that two hours into the visit still says, how are you? And mm-hmm. he's already asked me three <laughs> times, granddad, I'm fine. Exactly. But still, fact still remains, we generate new brain cells similarly. 
Wonderful. So, mm-hmm. how many in my news today? It's not about brain cells, but it is about sweet things. Do you love sweets? Sweets, chocolates, candy. Yes, Are of you, course I do. You're not like a bulltongue and chips kind of girl. Uh, no, uh, no. Give me sweets. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, I'm with you on that. I have a self-proclaimed uh, love for all things chocolate and cake, anything like that. And I'm, I'm in it with you. And this is actually a really good thing for you and me then because mm-hmm. new research suggests that this isn't as much of a, of a problem as we would have thought for our waistline. Mm-hmm. So as you grab some chocolate and listen to me because you're like, yes, Alma's going to tell me I'm not going to get fat. I can't tell you that. If you eat that whole chocolate, I, I can, cannot be responsible for your waistline. <laughs> but I do have some research to make you feel better about this. Um, First, some background. The Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences at the University of Copenhagen last year already found that if you have a particular craving for sweet things, like myself and Harmony, that you may be influenced by your genes in this regard. Specifically, they linked your love for all things cakes and donuts to the gene variant FGF21. I get that, but while we all like it sometimes, some people definitely have more of a liability towards it. Definitely. There are those people that just will not part, like not stop at go at a buffet, mm. just go straight for the dessert. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out that there's more to it than just that. New research from the same team at the university has linked this particular gene variant to something else. The likelihood of less body fat Hmm. my friends even the researchers were surprised yes apparently a sweet tooth means you are more likely to be thin Mm. i want the world to hear this because i'm very excited (laughs) that's so strange because most people would assume that you'd be thinner if you didn't consume as much sugar not the other way around yeah and of course of course there is a link between those things we're not saying that suddenly you know all of biology has turned (laughs) on its head (laughs) it did and that's exactly why it came as a shock but the researchers did warn that they were only looking at this one specific gene variant and that there's a much bigger picture here in terms of the connection between diet and sugar intake and the risk of obesity and diabetes and similar diseases. How did they do the study? It's always good to understand in the context. Yeah, if it's just 20 people who all like cake, you know, can we really trust that? But in this case, it's a very large amount of data because they were studying health information for more than 450,000 people in the UK who had given permission for their data to be recorded in in the UK biobank. And this means blood samples, questionnaires on diet and genetic data, just to mention a few of the things. That's quite extensive. Sounds like a dream to have this variant. You get to be thin and eat as much chocolate as you want. Yeah, and you have just an excuse whenever anybody <laughs> says like, mm, you've been eating quite a lot. You're like, leave me alone. I have this gene. Well, it isn't quite that perfect, unfortunately. This gene um, is also, or this variant, this genetic variant is also connected to slightly higher blood pressure and more fat around the waist than the hips that's normally called the apple shape and it's linked to various other medical uh, things 
And what you do need to know is that even though it's quite a high amount of people, it's about one in five Europeans that have this gene variant, the difference in body fat or blood pressure levels is relatively minor. So it's not a huge difference. But this research is so important because they're trying to use it to anticipate and treat problems around um, things like diabetes and obesity, which are often linked to loving your cake. So <laughs> this story came through Science Daily and the University of Copenhagen. And even though it does put some hope into my sweet, loving heart. Exactly. I, unfortunately, it doesn't excuse anybody from... <laughs> there is a limit to how many Easter Easter eggs and Easter bunnies you can eat on those sales with the chocolate. You can't now take the science aside and use them as an excuse, unfortunately. <laughs> that was our science news uh, with myself, Alna Schutz, and our producer, Harmony Malefi, was joining me next up. After this whole Facebook data scandal, we're looking closer at your info online. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Alna Schitz and we are getting into our main story today. I know that you are probably as worried as I have been if you are a Facebook user and you've been like posting sexy pictures there since like 2008 and now you think Mark Zuckerberg is looking at you. Um, I highly doubt that's the kind of data that came out but the data scandal has been very worrying and even though we may not be the people to speak on the consequences and how exactly this happened there is a bigger picture here around online security and our data that we are creating every day as users of many different social networks and websites. So our producer, Bridget Lepeha, has a story for us on this and how to stay safe online. An incident that I had with Facebook was that somebody hacked into my account and what those people did was put pornography and thereafter they tagged people especially my pastors and for me it, it was a very negative effect because I presume even my pastors they assumed it was me but what I found very funny was that I could not see what was done in my account but it was only seen by those that were tagged into it so it did affect me because you can just imagine your reputation but what I was glad about was that not so much glad but the fact that after it happened to me and already I wasn't happy with it but the same thing happened to my pastor so when it happened to him even him understood that it wasn't actually me who put that pawn but the accounts were being hacked so even today I still do not understand or do not know who hacked into my account but what I did was change the passwords and thereafter, I had another incident just a few months later whereby somebody created a new account on my name, not using my actual name, but using my photo. And 
what they did was indicating that I am selling IDs. So if you want an ID, if you're non-South African, then you can contact those people. And they had numbers of the people you needed to contact. But none of those numbers belonged to me. And the account holder was not my name, but my photo was being used and it was me in uniform. So that on its own, it meant it was more legit. So that dampened my reputation a bit because although I knew it was not me, but the fact that it went so viral that people understood that I was selling IDs. So for me, it really hit, but it wasn't that hard because I knew it wasn't me. However, my problem was that since that happened till today, I haven't found answers. I was advised to go and open a case with the SAPS. When I got there, I was asked how would they go about opening the case because they have never dealt with cybercrime and they were never taught how to address it. And I was dismissed with just but an affidavit. And when I got back to the office, my manager explained it was cybercrime, but no one could show me a platform that which I need to go into to address the issue. Moreover, no one could assist me where my reputation is concerned. Till today, I still do not know who did that. I still do not know how to solve the case. It was just a case. It happened and it was left at that. Recently, Facebook made headlines again over the worst privacy crisis fallout in its years. The company is reeling after as many as 87 million of its users' data was illicitly accessed by a Donald Trump-affiliated data mining company, which used the ill-gotten information to try and influence the elections. The following insert is one of the many instances in which one's privacy and security may be compromised. The other, in terms of your information being taken by other people, maybe a recent simple example is the challenges that some people have with political parties sending uh, notifications to you and you might not be a member of that party or even be interested in it. So there's a question of where does all of this data come from? How do you get my phone number? How do you get my email? And this is a a kind of a symptom of having all these companies that are data brokers that buy and sell information from each other. So now there's a question of now, if I gave you information as a company and this information maybe was for me getting a financial service from you, whether you're a bank, insurance company, dot, 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 but then now you take that information and then you sell it to a third party without my explicit permission, and then it ends up with somebody else who then uses it, who is responsible for leaking my data, and then it then being used for other things. Because ultimately, these things also might lead to things uh, like identity theft, where you find that people are opening accounts in your name and all those things, because if people aren't actually protective of their personal information, other people then use it and exploit it for other reasons. With so much of personal data being shared on social media platforms, one may question how really secure is one's information regardless of the strength of a password, the privacy settings, or the features supplied by the social media platforms. Another point one can ponder on is whether one should be on the platform in the first place. Data scientist and senior researcher at the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, Dr. Vukosi Marivate, explains further on other ways in which data security is being breached by so-called data brokers and how your information is being used and why this is still happening as we speak. I think one of the things people should kind of try to understand is that one, we live in this global village. It's not necessarily that the company that you interact with online is a company that's also based in the country. So a lot of the things that have to do with regulations and laws 
easier to enforce if a company is based on your soil and they're harder when kind of they're far away and then people just use their services and they say that, well, because we're not headquartered in that country, we don't really need to abide by a lot of the laws that are there. Some areas find ways around this. So the EU, for example, will have laws that just apply and then say that even if, like, you know, if you are using data that comes from our citizens, uh, you still have to be answerable um, for that. So one of the things people should really look out for is that when you are using a lot of these services that are free, in one way or another, you are the product. What they're doing is they're taking data that you're providing onto the platform, and then from there, they are selling the data, whether directly or indirectly, to other people to be able to generate their revenue. And the simplest example of this is just that it's you're selling eyeballs, so you're selling advertising. So when you're on Facebook, you're on Twitter, on Instagram or wherever, you see these adverts. And for the companies, they make money out of people having to click and maybe click and then buy something given that advert. Uh, So companies use the data that they collect from you to build models that can predict whether you are highly likely to click or buy something from a retailer through that advert. So at the moment, I don't see South Africa specifically having precedent of saying, okay, fine, let's say in the latest data breaches on a lot of different of these these social media companies, where you would go to try and get recourse. So it would be something else if those companies were on South African soil and then they were subject to POPIA or the Protection of Personal Information Act because then there will be, like, you know, some follow-ups on the information that is captured by these services. Was it secure? Were procedures followed to make sure that it's secure? And then was recourse given to the individual when something actually went wrong? So at the moment... That does, like, you know, because you don't really have that, uh, it would apply if it was a South African company, as far as I understand. If you are part of these things, there's nothing much more you're going to get except getting a notification saying that, hey, your data might have been breached. And this happens over and over again. It's not just from social media companies, it's companies that might be retail who are selling things, and then you might have gone on, signed on, provided information, and then, like, you know, your information uh, then gets compromised. Even now with Popia, it's only now that the information regulator is really coming in online. So they still have a lot of work to do to get to a point where people really understand their limits and then also understand that there's actually consequences to doing wrong things and not actually being safe. Most likely the person who will end up being responsible is the person who creates that hate speech, not necessarily the company. There will be things about that. Was the platform that was used actually doing enough to identify if there might have been something like this. And then given that, then once they figured out that there was uh, such a thing, did they then remove the, the content where the, that might have been offensive or breaking the law? That is one thing. Now, you may question what happens next in the likelihood that your privacy or security has been breached. Or you may simply no longer want to be a subscriber in fear that your data may be dishonestly used or accessed. Do you have any rights to claim your precious data back? So the security challenges with social media services started a long time ago. I think can go back 10 years. Over time, what they've been doing, whether it's Facebook, it's Google, all these companies have been implementing these features that allow you to get your data back. 
the reason being that the, you might want to close your account and leave their service, but then you want to get your data to take it with you for whatever reasons. It might just be that you were using it to catalog diary or what you think that you were doing. So Facebook has the same kind of feature. You can actually go ask Facebook for your data and then they will generate a big file for you and then you can take it and then you can go and close your account. And I think Facebook gives you different ways to close your account. You can suspend your account and then you can close your account and delete everything. Navigating the field of technology can be an unnerving experience when you consider the many things we are unaware of when using social media platforms. We often use resources readily made available to us, sometimes without even questioning if the technology we are using has any risks. Dr. Marivate talks about the facial recognition technology and the ways in which it helps software developers to gain more information about you. It's a very high-tech thing, but only you can only take it down to a much simpler example. So yes, face recognition is something that's now taken as being normal. Maybe you go back 10 years ago and you look at how people interacted on the internet or with apps. They didn't like, you know, that's not something that you really thought was either possible or if it, it was there, it would be something that startles you and you say, okay, I don't know what, what's going on. One of the ways that it's used a lot is in giving context to, to images. So if you think actually, let's say Facebook, for example, if you have a picture on Facebook, Facebook automatically identifies where all the faces are. And in some cases, this might look like a, a very interesting enhancement that they added because then after you upload a picture, they already suggest to you who you should tag in that picture. So for you, it looks like it's a convenience because it decreases the time that you need to go and find your friend and say, oh, this is the friend that is in, my, in the picture. But on the same time, for Facebook, is that they're uh, like, you know, curating this large data set that has everybody in it, right? And also, sometimes, it's, even if your friend doesn't use Facebook, they, uh, just from the information that you provided them, they are able to, over time, kind of build up this knowledge about this person that who might have never even had a Facebook account ever in their life. So the challenge is with these, uh, with, with these services is when it comes to that, of saying when you realize that, okay, maybe you're taking all this information, you're creating a profile of this person, even if they're not even on the service, and from there you can even understand their life because if you keep on up- uploading pictures and uploading things, they kind of know, oh, picture was taken at this place and there was this event going on. So they can actually actually create a whole profile of the person without that person actually ever entering inside the service. Recently in South Africa, we have seen the ramifications of propagating hate speech and racism. However, globally, activities of terrorism, wildlife trafficking and other heinous offenses have been communicated through social media platforms which are largely uncensored. This begs to question if social media platforms are being regulated and if not, who should be regulating it and what would this mean for you and I? Dr. Marivate explains. On, on one part, I think there's the law that governs kind of the way that we interact with each other as citizens. So the, the question you, you put up earlier about hate speech, you're saying that in South Africa there are hate speech laws. So even if you, it's, it's on Twitter or on Facebook, you can still go if you can identify that there's a person who's connected to this and then this person is actually a real person in South Africa, you can go and report that person. And there have been cases now that have gone and said president that, that this is actually true in South Africa. It's not something that is hypothetical that you can go to that. And then there comes this question of saying that now if Facebook is, has been made aware 
or something like this, but they still leave that person to continue doing what might be taken as wrong. That way, I think there will be a challenge in South Africa. I don't think we have at the moment a regulatory framework that allows a South African law enforcement or the judiciary to then compel Facebook to stop something that they might believe is, is actually illegal in South Africa. It is evident that we still have a long way to go in terms of learning new media and drawing up laws and regulations that will safeguard both our sanity and integrity. Social media is here to stay and is clearly a problem child of new media. But it is not all doom and gloom because social media is the darling of all those it has brought together. And who knows, with more advances in technology, cyber crimes, and privacy breaches may soon become a thing of the past. That was a story done by our producer, Bridget LePere, and I think it puts into the spotlight this decision that we have around how we use even the newest, the best tech, whether that's AI or facial recognition. In the end of the day, we do have some control over where our data goes, but how how much do we really know about where it's going and how can we protect ourselves to make sure we're making the best decisions in the areas where we can make decisions fascinating story there and as we carry on with the science inside it gets a little bit more silly after the break with our unscience feature you're listening to the science inside bringing you science around major news events my name's Alna Schutz, and I'm again joined by one of our producers, Harmony Malefi. Harmony, are you a data or a data pronunciator? Mm-hmm. I think I'm a data person. I had to really control myself on this show because I keep jumping between the two and in one sentence wanting to say data and data. I don't know, maybe there are differences. Maybe it's data if it's online, but data if it's like airtime. Mm, nobody knows. <laughs> maybe this is what we need a research study on. And that would be a silly research study, which is exactly what we're talking about now. Because in unscience, we look at studies and science that makes you go, what? Scientists do that? I thought they were serious people. Well, let me prove you wrong on that one because even though it might be serious science, there are some ridiculous topics for research and that's exactly what we look at in our unscience feature. Today's information comes from Science Daily and Arizona State University and the music is by People Sound Effects. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. So Harmony, kick us off. If you believe it, you can achieve it, so they say. But what if your beliefs about your own intelligence compared to others comes down to your gender? A study was shown in that in a classroom, men like to perceive themselves as smarter even when evidence points the other way. I mean, when women's grades are just as high. Come on! Okay. That's a bit surprising and strange. But isn't it always the case that in these kinds of studies, people might just say what they want to be true? So many, maybe the men just want to think they're smarter. 
people often make conclusions from um, a few instances and it is likely that intelligence is associated with gender. Such conclusions may impact students' perception of their own intelligence, particularly when they start comparing themselves to others. According to Katyn Cooper, a doctoral student at Arizona University School of Life Sciences, she had talked with hundreds of students and this was found to be true. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about uh, this study. Students were asked how their classes were going. Over and over again, women would say that they were afraid that other students would think they are stupid. And none of this was heard from men. In this research, individuals enrolled in a course were also asked to estimate their own intelligence as compared to others in the same class and those they worked more closely with. Women were far more likely to underestimate themselves than men. It was proven that a male student is likely to say they are smarter than everyone else in the classroom. Okay, so just to play a devil's advocate here, is it really so wrong for men to be confident? Because at the end of the day, surely what matters is your mark. That's what you're walking away with from the class, not what other people think of you. But remember, when students are working together, they are more likely to compare themselves to each other. As is proven in this study, women think that they are not good as other students. By men saying they are smarter than everyone else may drive women in certain classes away because they may fear interacting with someone who has already said, I am smart. Okay, especially in male-dominated, traditionally male-dominated fields like engineering and architecture to some degree and um, computer science. This kind of gender dynamic really does have a huge effect because it might mean that in future, younger girls are not going to want to face those kinds of battles, so they just avoid the classes. Surely there's something that can help this. Yes, there can be a well, changing their mindset is one of the important things because it is encouraged that you should start telling students to work together, to hear from everyone else when working in a group, to like just encourage um, group participation instead of letting the confident ones think they are better than others. I mean, we all equal. Okay, I think the other thing here is that most humans hate group work. I've never met a student who's <laughs> like, you know what I love? Group work. I don't, I don't, I've never met a student like that. So that maybe comes into it also. But you know what? Can we really say that men or women are smarter in the classroom? I think that's a problematic thing to start off with even. It is very, but the thing is, women have always been smarter. The only difference, they don't go around talking about it like <laughs> some people do. <laughs> okay, that last bit I don't think was research <laughs> backed. But uh, being a very female uh, production team, sometimes we can slip something in there. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Harmony, for um, our unscience. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Hello and welcome back to the show. We've chatted about so many things on the show already and everything we talk about, we love having scientists on, of course, being a science show. But you might think that science 
is far away, far removed from your life. But I think the one thing that this show loves doing is showing you how real it is. And a big part of that is looking at the scientists behind the science. Today with us in uh, our next interview is Dr. Mark Williams-Wynn, who holds a PhD in chemical engineering from UKZN, that's the University of KwaZulu-Natal, and he's currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Thermodynamics Research Unit there. He also performs process engineering consulting work through um, data Kim, and they specialize in thermophysical property measurements and a bunch of other things within process engineering consultancy. For his doctoral studies, Mark developed a process to treat oil sludges using new supercritical solvents. He also leads a team in developing a process for the recovery of rare earth metals from waste materials. And his current areas of research include chemical thermodynamics, waste treatment and recycling processes. So you can already hear where we're going with this in terms of his research being very much in in terms of wanting to make the best out of our waste products. He has published several peer-reviewed articles, holds two patents, as and has presented at numerous international conferences. He is also one of the five South Africans nominated to be part of the Lindau Nobel Laureate meeting in Lindau, Germany, which is always a very prestigious uh, place to be as a scientist in South Africa. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Mark. Good evening, Anna. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. Let's get into it. And just for the audience who generally, you know, will use a lot of plastic, paper and e-waste, which is electronic waste, and then throw it away, probably never to think of it again. Tell us a bit more about why the thermodynamic processes behind recycling these different materials are so important. Well, the properties of the different materials play an important role in how they can be recycled. And you've got metals that melt at very high temperatures, whereas plastics melt at low temperatures. Um, some plastics even decompose when they're heated and they create hazardous gases. And so it's important to consider the all these differences when you're designing a process to recycle any specific uh, material e-waste um, just to, because you want it to be as efficient as possible uh, mm. to recycle the different material. And see, throwing away paper or plastic is one thing, but with e-waste, it does get me a little bit worried if I have an old computer or even an old microwave or fridge that does have certain chemicals in it. I'm not just going to, you know, leave that on the pavement and hope it disappears. Is there something to be worried about in terms of the effects that this electronic waste might have, not just on us, but on the earth in the long run? Yeah, well, I think there's two considerations that you have to look at. The first is the environmental and the health effects that the e-waste has. I mean, it's got hazardous components such as mercury, cadmium, lead inside of it, which can easily get into the environment if the e-waste is just disposed of into landfills or just thrown on the side of the road. But then there's also another um, aspect, which is, looking at the wastage of the valuable and scarce resources that are in the electronic waste. Uh, and so it's important to recycle for both of these reasons. Hmm. 
And uh, you do look into recycling in terms of recovering these rare materials that you're talking about, specifically in lighting waste. How does that work and, and how do you do it? Well, if you, if you think about a fluorescent or a CFO light bulb, each one contains a it's called luminophorous powder, which is what gives them the ability to create light. So you get some light bulbs that are warm yellow, some that are a cold blue color, and these are created by the powder inside of the light bulbs. And so what we've done is we've developed a process to extract the rare metals which are inside of this powder, but also to recover the mercury that's in the powder. So obviously the mercury, you don't want that to get into the environment. Mm. Um, so this process kind of has a dual effect in that we can recover the valuable rare earth metals, but we're also stopping mercury from entering the environment. Uh, and so our process uses processes that are commonly used in the mining industry. Uh, some of them are called hydrometallurgy, solvent extraction, to actually recover the, the rare metals from the powder. Uh, and one advantage of treating uh, the waste materials is they actually have a lot higher concentration of the rare metals than if you were mining straight from the ground. Especially because we have already gone through the process once to mine them, it would really make not that much sense to just now discard those those materials as if they can't be used again when they are rare and precious in a lot of different forms. Yes, uh, and um, lots of the mining operations are actually very harmful to the earth. and They have to uh, take up huge amounts of earth to actually get the rare metals. So it makes sense to extract it from a waste material, which is otherwise going to go to landfill in any case. Hmm. But, of course, just because it's important doesn't mean it's easy. How difficult okay. is that process of trying to recycle these materials or recover them? Well, if you, if you just think about the average smartphone, it contains between 60 and 75 different elements. Uh, so now imagine trying to separate all 60 or 70 different elements from one another. Um, and that's just looking at smartphones. Then you've got laptops, fridges, stoves. Uh, you can see it becomes a, a very complicated picture um, when you look at all these different electronic items that need to be recycled. Uh, and so... In some cases, the components can be recycled um, or reused. For example, computers, often it's just one, one part of the computer that gives in, and you can reuse the remainder of the computer. Mm -hmm. uh, but if the, if the component becomes obsolete or is broken, then it has to be broken down into the individual comp compound or reused. When you say it like that, it sounds obvious that the rest of the computer or the smartphone is probably still fine. It's just the battery or the hard drive or whatever it might be. But I'm sure a lot of people think, oh, it's broken. There it goes in the trash. No two thoughts to it except for the heaviness of picking up the plastic bag when you're throwing out the trash. Um, to say it like that, what needs to happen in terms of recycling e-waste in on the consumer side? Well, I mean, looking at plastic, paper, glass, metals, 
that's a good start for, for people to start recycling those items. And I know that in South Africa, many municipalities are actually starting to offer services to collect these individual items alongside the standard garbage collection. Um, but these are all like, they all have only a single or maybe one or two components, and so they can easily be recycled. But when you look at the more complex materials, such as e-waste, it becomes a lot more challenging. Uh, there are some places where you can actually drop off your e-waste and then it gets sent to be recycled. But these are often like far apart and there's maybe one in each town. And so it becomes an inconvenience for the consumer to actually do this. Um, so if you compare it to Europe, uh, in Europe, if you buy an electronic item, the shop you buy the item from is required by law to actually take the old item back from you free of charge and to get it recycled. Uh, it's called uh, extended producer responsibility. Uh, whereas in South Africa, we don't have anything like that at the moment. And so it's actually fairly difficult um, to, to give advice on what, what needs to happen. Uh, I think for South Africans, we actually need to demand a greater responsibility from the producers uh, and ask government to, to put processes in place to ensure that this happens so that the e-waste can be treated from cradle to grave. Mm. Um, like the biggest problem with that is likely to increase the prices of the e-waste because the companies have to then pay for their recycling. Yeah. And on the recycling side of things, are the processes that we need in place? Like, is it possible to recycle all the things that um, e-waste produces? I think if you look at Europe, a lot is recycled. There's still some that isn't recycled. Um, and in many cases, it's the items that are kind of the cost-benefit analysis, if you look at the item... If it's too costly and difficult to separate, then often it's, it's not recycled into the individual components. It might be repurposed for a different use. Um, but there aren't processes for every single item. I think what needs to happen is it needs to become a duty of the producers to create items that are easier to actually recycle. Mm. Uh, but then it's again a trade-off of cost versus economic, well, cost of actually doing that compared to what the consumers want. Right, and Mark, just to 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 turn towards you as a scientist for a second, um, what inspired you to look specifically at this in terms of your research and your work? Yeah, so we initially started with with this process to recycle the rare earth metals. Um, and as we got into the whole e-waste sector, we realized that there's actually so many areas in this field that are yet undiscovered or that there's not a solution for. And so we came to the conclusion that we could actually lend a hand in, uh, cre in developing these technologies. Uh, and in, in in addition, um, if you look at Europe, Asia, and America, there are many of the technologies that we need in South Africa available, but the challenge is actually applying these technologies to South Africa because in many cases it needs actually the technology to be downscaled. Uh, because South Africa is 
so far from the rest of the countries where e-waste recycling is actually happening. Uh, and 50 million people in South Africa is actually not that big. Uh, and so the big challenge is to actually downscale the technology to be able to treat smaller amounts of the e-waste in an economic manner. Mm. Mark, just lastly, we love asking our guests this. I'm going to give you a bit of a, a soapbox <laughs> on the science inside. Um, what is the one thing that you wish normal laymen outside of your field understood about recycling and the things that you work on? Well, I think one of the big things about electronic waste is actually to create awareness um, as people become aware that it's, it's not ideal to, it's not a good thing to just throw everything into straight into the bin um, it will make it easier for um, for example petitioning the government to introduce legislation to encourage recycling or to actually have enough feedstock to, to feed a plant that is recycling electronic waste um, and I think it's also important to realize that that anyone can can come up with a recycling process. Uh, you don't have to have a PhD to do that. Um, there's lots of different waste streams that, that no one's actually collecting that could be collected and could be turned into an uh, entrepreneurship uh, opportunity for people. Um, even though lots of waste streams are hazardous, and so you have to know what you're working with. It doesn't require a PhD. Anyone can do it. That is quite inspiring. I've never thought of it um, quite that way. That was Dr. Mark Williams of Wynn from UKZN who works at all at looking at all of that electronic waste that you and I have produced in our lives and trying to find scientific processes to deal with it better, whether it's an old cell phone or an old laptop. There are things there that are valuable and that's what he's working on in our feature, looking at, or our interview rather, looking at the scientists behind the science. Stay with us on The Science Inside. This is The Science Inside with Elna. My time with you is almost up and the last hour has had all kinds of things in it. A research study on whether men or women are smarter in the classroom or rather who thinks they're smarter. We looked at uh, data online or data if you want to pronounce it that way. Your data online and how to stay secure especially around all the rumblings with the current Facebook data scandal and then lastly we spoke to Dr. Mark Williams Wynn about our electronic waste where it goes and how we could be dealing with it far better as South Africa. Quite an interesting show with a lot of different things and I hope you walk away with something that makes you think in this week coming up. A big thank you to all of our guests featured on the show including Dr. Mark williams Wynn and Dr. Vukosi Maevate. Our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Lepere, Harmony Malefi, Lebohang Madisha and Gloria Mabuza and tech by Kutlwana Sayame as always our podcast. Do be aware that this link has changed. It is now vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. So 
do just be aware that it has moved to a different place or rather our website has been upgraded so vits.journalism.coza forward slash science that's where you can find all of our podcasts and if you can't find it there you can find us on social media at Ralph M and under the name Radio Academy on Twitter it's Ralph M my name is Elna Schutz and the Science Society is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. We'll be with you again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on OSN 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.